0: Welcome to a special episode of Studs, my podcast about working. I'm Daniel Lazar. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I suspect you can already tell that this is a special episode of Studs because, well, the intro music. It's nice, right? Well, that there intro music is by my pal Bob of the new podcast, Bob's Just Askin'. The song, Bob, all this requires a bit of explanation. So here goes. Now, loyal listeners of the Studs pod probably know that when I'm not babbling into this hair microphone or taking orders from one of the two gingered overlords with whom I cohabitate, I teach history and politics. That's what I do. And for many years, the college board would fly me out to beautiful Salt Lake City, Utah in June to grade advanced placement exams. I would spend seven days eight hours a day at a table with nine other miserable graders scrutinizing hastily written high school student essays. And if that my friend sounds like a nightmare to you, it is. And if that sounds like fun to you, (laughs) please seek counseling. It's a dystopia, right? Grading thousands of student responses to the same essay question all day, every day, seven days. It's the grind of grinds. Now, the only reprieve from this grind, save for the binge drinking that begins at 5 or 1 p.m., <laughs> is the Daily Smorgasbord. The College Board kindly provides AP readers with five buffets a day for seven days. Uh-huh. 35 free buffets in a week. And if you're anything like me, that's a legit problem. And if you know teachers, and I promise, I promise that every teacher listening to this will vouch for me here, when teachers get free stuff, like particularly free food, it's like Black Friday in Possum Grape, Arkansas. It's all in the game, and you got to watch out. So my move is to fill up with coffee, get away from the food, and talk to strangers. And in one such coffee talk, I met a high school history and politics teacher from beautiful New Jersey called Bob Fenster. I like the cut of Bob's jib. We get to talking and next thing you know, we're at the Hilton drinking rum on the rocks that I got from one of those sad Mormon liquor stores that almost begged for sobriety. So it turns out that Bob and I, well, we've got a lot in common. So we became pals. And when the pandemic hit, Both of us pivoted to podcasting in an effort to create space for empathic dialogues with good, hard-working folks. Bob's podcast is called Bob's Just Asking. The premise is as innocent as it is beautiful. He sits down with people who are expert in something that Bob cares about, and Bob asks questions. Now, as you know, Studs is in the midst of a season exploring the working lives of people who devote their careers to teaching and learning. And I'm wicked proud of this season so far. But I know there's facets of education that I've been glossing over or ignoring entirely. And when I was listening to Bob's Just Asking, I realized that there's one facet of education that I really shouldn't gloss over. In this episode of Bob's Just Asking, the eponymous Bob dives into the work life of Zach Lowe. Once a social studies teacher, Zach is an advocate for LGBTQ students and teachers. He talks about how he and his colleagues navigate some arcane and sometimes downright cruel state education laws in the noble effort to make schools safe for all students and for all teachers. You know, perhaps in my effort to grapple with some of the shame and the pain of having grown up in a typically homophobic, Midwestern, 1980s environment. I've since been an LGBTQ advocate for nearly 20 years. I started a gay-straight alliance early in my teaching career, much to the chagrin of many, including some of my bosses. And currently, I'm the founding advisor of the Kennedy School's Ideas Club, Ideas is an acronym for identity, diversity, empathy, awareness, and service. I made it up. It's pretty good, right? But in all these years, I never really thought precisely about what it means to respect someone with whom you disagree. Like if someone believes in something or acts in a way that you find foolish or harmful, what does respect mean? actually look like? You know, Bob's conversation with Zach forced me to contend with that. There's really a lot to this conversation. So please join Bob in conversation with educator and LGBTQ plus rights advocate, Zach Lowe.
1: In my years in the classroom, I've always wanted to find ways to support my LGBTQ students. Because of the nature of sexual orientation and gender identity, many, probably most, of those students' identities were unknown to me. My own journey on this issue was accelerated by friends and acquaintances I met at Rutgers College, who gave me the opportunity to ask all sorts of ignorant questions to gain a better understanding. While it was not their responsibility to educate me, they patiently corrected any misconceptions I had and helped me in my journey to becoming a supportive ally. And although I marvel at how how far we've come societally, in this interview, Zach Lowe deftly reminded me of how important it is to remember how much more we need to do. Zach is an educator who has been doing advocacy for LGBTQ students and educators for a number of years. And to help me prep for this interview, he gave me some of his training materials. That's where we start on this meandering, but I think productive conversation. Zach Lowe, welcome to Bob's Just Asking.
2: Thanks for having me, Bob. What are you just asking about?
1: You'll find out. (laughs) All right, so in your presentation materials, you you first talk about uh, your background and your current life. Uh, what, what went into your decision to personalize the content as opposed to a more clinical removed approach?
2: Well, I mean, I think in this type of content discussion, it is so personal, right? So all of the stories of our students, of colleagues, anytime that we are advocating or teaching or discussing about um, LGBTQ you know, topics, people, places, things, education, it has to be personal because that is the personal story and that kind of branches out i'd say more to our perspectives our biases our understandings our experiences that all of those things really you know shape how we view not only the need to cover this content and to support these students and to support our colleagues but then just you know our desire to so those two kind of Separate beings, is there a need to do so in our in whatever our current time context space is, and do we as individuals feel that that we should be doing it?
1: When did you start doing advocacy for LGBTQ students, and was there anything specific that you experienced or saw that precipitated that work?
2: Yeah, so this goes back to my undergrad years. Um, I was in the honors college at the University of Akron, and as an honors student, you have to prepare a honors thesis. And my advisor at the time, Dr. Brad McGuth, he encouraged me to study a little bit into Ohio's state history standards. And this project kind of took the shape of looking at Ohio's standards and determining how much or how little LGBTQ topics, content, people, places, things, events were covered. And shockingly enough, there was not a single mention at all in Ohio's standards at the time. So that kind of sprung into my work as an educator. This was again, my senior year as an undergrad. I started my teaching career that following fall. And in that year, teaching in a completely different context from where I was raised in, in Northeast Ohio, I was teaching down in uh, rural South Carolina. I saw this more of a need, right? That not only was there maybe not these supports present yet, but there was absolutely no discussion about it either. And we were at least having these discussions in Ohio. So since that time, it's kind of expanded. I've, I've continued to collaborate with Dr. Maguth in different presentations you know, at NCSS. I've given presentations to future teachers in uh, pre-service teachers at the University of South Carolina. Um, and you know, in my own classroom instruction, albeit to a uh, slightly marginalized degree, I, I guess I would have to say.
1: What do you mean by that?
2: So I'm going to quote something here really quick. I I had it pulled up in preparation for this. Uh, A current South Carolina law. You ready?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Go for it.
2: It was enacted in 1988, so relatively recent in the grand scheme of South Carolina being one of the original 13 colonies and all that. And it says that um, health education programs cannot discuss, quote, alternate sexual lifestyles from heterosexual relationships including but not limited to homosexual relationships except and this is the kicker in the context of instruction concerning sexually transmitted diseases <laughs> oh man <laughs> so this is the current law that is on the books in the state of South Carolina which I'm no longer in the classroom in South Carolina or employed in a South Carolina district but that is the law on the books and while certain districts might opt to not necessarily hold their educators accountable to that particular law, that is what it states. That is the only reference of anything homosexual, gay, LGBTQ, yada, 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 in South Carolina's education code. That the only time that you can teach about, quote, homosexual lifestyles is when you're teaching about STDs in health class. And there's recently actually been some some news stories in, in other districts, districts I did not work in, that you know they're they're teaching about more diversity themes and more different content whether that's race whether that's religion and they've purposefully excluded any sort of lgbtq content for their students because of this statute
1: so how did you approach that in terms of i mean did, were you able to do anything substantial in the classroom on that subject
2: Um, So this a little bit of a sidebar, Um, I collaborated with Dr. Maguth on, um, I was a contributing author for one of the books that he was editing. And my chapter consisted of one C3 lesson um, about, you know, where does the world stand on gay rights? That was the central theme. And this particular lesson composed of three parts, right? It had uh, a formative performance task where students would create a timeline of major gay and lesbian rights milestones in their community. It had another task. Students would complete a chart that compares the rights here in the United States with another country of choice, and they had a final performance task. Uh, students would conduct a presidential brief outlining different ways they could improve the livelihood for uh, LGBTQ people in their community or, or across the globe. So. Of those three performance tasks, you know, I'm writing this lesson. I know it's going to go for publication. And I'm thinking, you know, could I teach one of these in my classroom? At the time, I taught eighth grade South Carolina history. So there's not necessarily a direct connection in terms of the content-based standards of the time. But there are these skill-based standards, right? That students should be able to analyze evidence. They should be able to construct an argument. That they should be able to evaluate different points of view. So I tried to make a case to my school administrator. Hey, can I teach this unit that I'm writing that's going for peer-reviewed publication? The response was no, but not for the reason that you would think of. The reason was, well, it's going to take too much time because this unit, I think, was nine days long. It's not expressly in in the content. So I, I go back to my principal and I ask, hey, principal, maybe could I just teach a third of this? Could I teach one of these performance tasks? And she said, absolutely you go right ahead. So I'm starting to plan for this. She comes back to me a few days later and says, Mr. Lowe, could you make sure just to maybe send home a letter, right? Letter clarifying what standard you're teaching, a letter allowing families to opt out if they're uncomfortable with the, with the content. I said, sure, I'm fine with that. We'll work on an alternative assignment. That's fine. A few days later, I get a call from a district office official. They call me into the district, the central office for the school district. And they say, you're not allowed to teach this lesson. So I go through the whole bit. You know, I've cut the lesson down. Here's the standards that it covers. Um, I'm, I've already sent home a letter. I'm going to ask people to opt out if they so choose. And it was, no, you're not allowed to teach this lesson. And I'll never forget that the one small quote that I got that that irked me a little bit was, it's not about you being gay, Mr. Lowe. I have a gay family member who I love very much. And in this conversation, uh. th- that's that's kind of where the conversation was, right? And I think it, it culminated with, well, it's just not in your content standards. And by that, I couldn't argue that it wasn't fully in my content standards. So I, I really didn't poke the bear anymore. But short of that content, I am a, a trained ally, uh, trained advocate, uh, through my undergrad institution. I had a sticker up on my classroom door for any students who wanted to have any conversations, if if they felt vulnerable, if they needed someone to talk to. I, I tried my best to be that person, but explicit teaching of the content wasn't able to actually happen.
1: Wow. That's horrible. <laughs> um, so were you, obviously your your uh, employers knew, were you, did your students
2: know, or were you out to your students? Um, <laughs> middle school students, um, I, I would say would probably be the best private detectives that the world would have to offer. <laughs> um, I was out on Facebook. I was friends with my with some of my colleagues on Facebook. I, uh, became friends with my students, you know, after they, after they left our school, went on to, uh, to another school and of course word got around. Um, So my first year, I kind of kept quiet just because there are no workplace protections for LGBTQ people in South Carolina. So I kept relatively quiet. Uh, I I did know that the superintendent was fully in support of just good teaching, um, Mm -hmm. aside from from any issues. In fact, when uh, President Obama uh, had... uh, did his executive order for the the transgender bathrooms that you you get to choose whichever bathroom you you want to go to. Our district was one of the first in the state that said, we're going to hop on board with this executive order. We're going to implement it with fidelity. Whereas other districts were trying to resist it. So our our district administration, by and large, very supportive, very open, very understanding. So my first year, um, like I said, I, I really wasn't out just playing it easy. I knew that there was support, but didn't really want to walk that line. I'd say by like my second year, I saw one of my colleagues, um, there were some students who were using like the term gay in a derogatory term. I saw uh, one of my colleagues step in, intervene in that situation. So I said, hey, this is awesome peer support, mm-hmm. right? That there's someone who recognizes this is a problem. I'd say by my third year is when students were actually vocal and they're like, yeah, Mr. Lowe, we know. Or like they'd see something in the news, they'd say, Mr. Lowe, what do you think about this? And I'd be like, well, why are you asking me? They're like, aren't you gay, Mr. Lowe? So <laughs> well, like I said, about about the third year. But I taught in a very, very small school. Everyone knew each other. Everyone was related. Um, you know, I, I taught for six years in the classroom and then a year as a curriculum coach. I taught uh, you know, three siblings and several families just in those six years. So just very tight knit community. Once that, that first kind of hat dropped and the first student made that comment, I'm like, okay, I think I'm good here.
1: Now let's, we're going to segue to, uh, the actual training materials that you shared with me. Um, and one of the things you did, and I, I gather because it was sort of a hybrid activity because you were, um, most likely, you were conducting it on Zoom or or or, or something. Uh, but you had a there was an activity in there called Cross the Line, which has a which has a lot in common with uh, privilege walks uh, that I've seen some some people do. Uh, people take a step forward if they identify as a woman, if they've been discriminated against, if they're a child of divorced parents. You also have a, a few silly items in there and a couple of things that seem like they should send people in the opposite direction. Is this? A, a, an activity that's just a palate cleanser of sorts to get people primed for the material to come or what's your what are you doing with that
2: so this presentation was originally developed for those pre-service teachers i was talking about um, folks who and, and generally when i say pre-service teachers these are teachers who are have already gotten their bachelor's degrees and are in their master's programs for education because that's how the university of south carolina operates in terms of degrees so these are experienced professionals Every presentation I do, though, I want it to be not only tangible in terms of what you can take away as a practitioner, as a as a theorist from that education science perspective, but then also what are you going to do in your classroom tomorrow? And a cross the line activity, or, or as you say, privilege walk. It sounds like they're they're one and the same. Is a perfect tool that you can use in your classroom. Um, but you know, as we would, or as I would, maybe as a middle school teacher. You have to throw in some things to de-stress the situation, right? So the the one that I, I really like, just because uh, it was, uh, gosh, I think two years ago I was giving this presentation and someone just sporadically asked at the end, "What's your favorite Jolly Rancher?" Because I, you know, put out candy on the table. So one of these, you know, as you say, palate cleanser kind of questions is, you know, what is or it, cross the line if your favorite Jolly Rancher is the red one. And I might you know, throw in a quip there that you know, the red one's the best one. If you don't like the red one, get out kind of a thing, <laughs> it, you know, a little bit of a sarcastic thing, depending on the crowd, right? But that allows me the flexibility not only to cleanse that palate in the middle of this, what can be very emotional exercise, right. but then also if, if the group is doing well with it, if they are fully engaged, then it allows for a little bit of, of my, my branded humor, I guess you could say, too. Well, that's, I guess that's what, that's,
1: that's specifically the idea of the, the tension that could exist. Um, my, my fear, I've never done, I've never done one. I show probably the one that, you know, more people have seen than any other that's on YouTube, uh, the, you know, the, the gym seems like a gym teacher out in the field. And, you know, then he, he points out how the black students are all in the back and, you know, and, um, my my hesitation about it and you know I'm just curious what your feeling is I mean I guess maybe you have to you have to you have to uh take a temperature of of the room but my my concern is the potential trauma if you will, of the kids who are in the back who are not any coming any closer to you know who have all of the can't cross because they all of the negative things or the anti privileged things if you would um apply to them.
2: Yeah. And, and, you know, I think that's all two pieces about your environment, right? I I would not recommend that you do a cross-the-line activity day one with your students in the beginning of a school year. Hey, let's talk about our deepest fears, you know, definitely not. But, you know, if you're in, you know, your second quarter, your third quarter, you develop your classroom climate, your classroom community, this might be something you employ, right? Now for me, in, in these presentations, these are groups that I just met and, I, but I would never do this activity first though. I would always sure. Th- th- there's something I would do. It, it's a, a tape activity, which maybe we can get into later using just oodles and oodles of painters tape. Um, but I, the second piece of that, you know, other than just knowing your your community, your environment, is how to structure these statements, right? I have a master's degree in educational administration. I took what I thought at the time was the silliest class, how to create an assessment. I'm like, I've already taught for three years. I know how to create an assessment, but it went all the way to the detail of, and this was for multiple choice assessments, this particular thing I'm thinking of, to word order, to answer order, to question order, to the verbs you use, passive um, versus active language, and you know, to those palate cleanser questions, this, how how I do this activity is purposely structured that it starts out with easier questions too. Just bare bones, cross the line, maybe if you identify as a student. And we start to build up the, 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 maybe the fear, the stress a little bit, and then we drop it back down with a palate cleanser. And then we kind of turn up the volume a little bit, go with a second set of questions that's just slightly more, um, intuitive in terms of the content that we're talking about, another palate cleanser. And then we come back with this third section that is really just at the heart of what we're getting at and what I would really like them to remember from the activity for our debrief questions after the fact. Um, Because it, it, it can be a relatively lengthy activity. I have somewhere in the neighborhood of I think 30 different statements and as you go through you might not remember the first couple you might not remember any of the ones after that first Jolly Rancher question, but about setting the tone, about setting the the feeling of it. And to the point of wording the questions at the end of the day, everyone's going to cross the line. I would say at least once with this, maybe twice. Um, And I have those questions purposely in there too. You know, please cross the line if you've not yet crossed the line. Mm -hmm. And while that might single out folks in, uh, in, individually, you know, if they haven't crossed the line yet, there's also a way that you can flip the statements around too, which, which you had mentioned earlier that just based on the language, some statements are geared towards maybe group X crossing the line, about half the statements, and then the other half are group Y crossing the line, just based on what I expect, what, what, what I can assume um, folks are going to bring to the table. So what's the,
1: I do want, after this question, I do want to go to your, the the tape exercise you mentioned, because I, I have no idea what that is. And I'm curious, but what's your, what's the sort of the goal of the takeaway of this activity in the debriefing? What are you hoping to have students share or, or say about that, that experience?
2: Um, a, a couple different things. So, you know, I have structured prompts for what they should respond to you know, so what was your greatest fear? Kind of like a bare bones question. What's the most interesting thing you learned about yourself? So getting to them reflecting on them own, on themselves, whether they're students, whether they're future teachers, whether they're current teachers, so that they can see, well, what have I done? Who am I? All these things, like, like I mentioned at the onset, um, you know, part of my personal story, all these things impact how you view this, this question how do we advocate for our LGBTQ students and, and or colleagues? And we really have to look at all these different things that folks might not necessarily uh, understand, contribute to the stress, this anxiety for individuals who identify as LGBTQ or who are allies or friends, family members, uh, whether you know it, it's a pride parade, which a lot of folks have never attended, or maybe it's a joke that someone made, but all these different experiences, I think that maybe in the uh, uh, maybe live in the subconscious that we need to pull out. So that's the first bit. The second bit, which is kind of more subtle, is just seeing who's around you, seeing who you might share commonalities with, sharing or seeing who you might be divergent with. Because as we progress through this training, through these different exercises, or after I leave the the room and these folks are either in class together uh, at the university level or whether they're colleagues at the same school, we want these conversations to continue because that's really where the power is at. I want them to leave with questions on their mind, with thoughts on their mind so they can then go back to their comfort zone, go back to their home, go back to their school go back to their community and ruminate on these thoughts from that perspective and then using me as a resource
1: so a lot of if i'm if i'm not mistaken then a lot of the statements are sort of invisible traits so you know that that you wouldn't know by looking at the person sitting next to you that they are the product of a one parent family or you know some of them some of them obviously are but but many are not and those are the ones that i think are Prone to create those those either bonds or recognition of differences that they might not have seen.
2: Yeah, I mean, and, and you think about yourself as as a teacher, right? What do you do that first week of school, other than bond building, other than trying to determine what experiences every student is bringing to the table, um, whether rigid discipline, right? <laughs> slam that hammer on the table, right? Or that yardstick on the table. yardstick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, in fact, uh, this is a little bit of a sidebar. My Spanish teacher in high school had a golf club because he was a big golf fan. He watched the <laughs> masters every year. Um, but my international relations teacher, his family was Irish and he had this giant, uh, Hurley stick. It, it, like it, it's been passed down three generations in his family and he would whip that sucker out anytime he wanted our attention and just whack it on the podium, you know? Um, but yeah, rigid <laughs> discipline. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. If, if, uh, persuasion doesn't work intimidation, that's our best, most important tip for up and coming teachers.
2: I would also say bribery works well too, but sure. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Whether that's money or food, especially food. All right. So tell me about the tape. Activity, And then we're going to get to the meat of this and, and actually talk about the uh, things like, uh, you know, LGBTQ stuff.
2: <laughs> yeah, so the the tape activity I actually got from one of my close friends, Jed Derryberry. Funny last name, but just a, a brilliant human being and, and a very impactful educator. He was a, um, a South Carolina Teacher of the Year finalist a few years before me, um, published author now, this, that, and the other. Now he does PD across the country. Um, But one of his things that he presented to us in in our district was this idea of tape art, right? And it's a very, very kind of um, low cost, I I would say both in terms of financial and then also in terms of maybe buy-in from the participants way to engage folks, right? So you give a group of three to four folks a uh, one of those little spools of painter's tape, something that you can get off walls easily. Yeah. Don't make the same mistake I did the first time. <laughs> but 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 then you basically, you know just as you would any other PD, you pose a question at the start, right? So maybe like, what's your experience with blank? Or how do you envision blank? Or what are your thoughts about blank, right? Different forms of this, you know, let's crack out the chart paper and you write down your response, right? This is more of a little bit more of a fun, engaging way that always happens before that cross-the-line activity because, like I said, we need to develop some of these bonds ahead of time. And what better way to do it than to pose the question, how do you advocate for your students? Show me by making a piece of art using painter's tape. And I leave it at that. They have about five minutes or so on a space on a wall, on the floor, on desks, to create artwork using one color of painter's tape. How do you advocate for students? And I've seen things all the way from them writing quotes with tape, literally ripping off teeny tiny pieces of tape (laughs) to make a T or an I or what have you, to larger things like uh, one of the the recent groups, and we haven't done this in a few years, just because of COVID, we haven't had in-person sessions in a while, but um, one of the groups did, it was a sunrise, right? And it's, well, we advocate for our students because we need to broaden their horizons and their understanding. But they had the sun, they had clouds, they had trees, they had a hill, this, that, and the other. And if you frame this particular content that way, right? I didn't say anything about LGBTQ students, people. None of that, what you could say, maybe a hot button or a controversial issue or the meat of it. But it's just, how do you advocate for students? Not, do you advocate for students? That's inherent. Yes, you advocate for students, how do you do it? Before we then transition into that cross the line.
1: That's, I think, that's a clever framing of it. I, I would, uh, I would balk at the assignment, though. I would just walk out on you because I can't make art out of blue tape.
2: Sorry. So, so, so <laughs> uh, you know, I said you know relatively low cost. You know, in terms of participant buy-in, I had a colleague whom I love dearly. She became so incredibly unnerved at the prospect of this activity. When, when Mr. Berry was actually presenting to us, I, I forget the the exact prompt, but she was stressing out. She put up a piece mm-hmm. of tape up on the wall. She's like, okay, I'm done. And you know, even the slightest suggestion like, hey, are you going to add anything else? No, no, I'm not going to. This is stressing me out. I don't do art. So of course you can't win everybody over, but generally speaking, it, it's been a useful experience.
1: <laughs> All right, let's get to it you cite in the uh, presentation a 2003 article by Stephen J Thornton who wrote in social education that few social studies materials appear to have a substantive treatment of gay history and issues it is as if the millions of gay inhabitants of the United States past and present did not exist now we didn't really need an academic uh, re- academic uh, academically researched article to draw that conclusion uh, but it does lead us to uh, a critical series of topics and questions. Um, In contrast to uh, the the, um, description you gave of South Carolina, one of 29 states where there are still uh, a lack of protections for uh, employment protections based on sexual orientation. uh, I teach in the state of New Jersey, and New Jersey is far ahead of the curve. Uh, We have a recent law that mandates the inclusion of LGBTQ subject matter though it's incredibly vague about when it's going to be included and in how much detail. I'm getting to a question, don't worry. There there are a few obvious possible subjects for a social studies classroom, uh, especially U.S. history. Uh, Stonewall, the don't ask, don't tell policy, the recent series of Supreme Court decisions. But in New Jersey, we also require the teaching of U.S. history over the course of two years, and I teach the first half which ends in 1877. So beyond noting that Baron von Steuben was gay and sharing a few stories of uh, people expressing gender identities other than their birth identity, I'm not really sure what I can do. So I throw that to you, that incredibly long introduction, as if you had absolute freedom to do whatever you wanted and you were teaching this US 1 class, what kinds of things would would you look to do?
2: Well, number one, I would say, would be Google. <laughs> um, and, and, and I say that part jest and then you know part actual truth, too. Um, th- the one thing, and a slight anecdote um, South Carolina recently revised their social studies standards um, for the year 2020, they took effect. And I was actually on that committee to rewrite the eighth grade history, which is South Carolina history from 13,000 years ago to present day. And we tried our darndest to include some sort of just recognition per se of LGBTQ people, places, things, events from the South Carolina history perspective, our own Mm -hmm. state history. And we reached out to some different organizations um, in the greater Columbia area, the capital, South Carolina. And one of those organizations did not respond. Two of them explicitly denied uh, assisting us because they did not want their names out there on such what is still a hotly contested topic in South Carolina at risk of um, demonization or, or what have you. So for us in South Carolina, when we were trying to not, I mean, put this in the standards, and you're talking just a brain trust of some of the best social studies teachers in the state working together over the course of a whole summer, weeks at a time, we could not find the content to put in the standards let alone make curricular resources out of. So for, for me, for my personal experience, it is really just uh, reaching out to those organizations that might have some sort of knowledge about what topics you could teach about. Um, I'd say really the, the heart at opportunities, particularly in, in your context in New Jersey, would be your local institutions, right? So different small museums, different uh, historians on a local basis uh, before you branch out to some of those larger maybe more statewide or, or national organizations where you might argue that the narrative is slanted one way or another but if you're going to search to, to try and include some of these topics I would I would really say that your local historians might be the best shot because they have those primary sources that might be able to cover the content that you're seeking um, but like I said, from my perspective, I've had very little success in just finding the content mm-hmm. that that is available.
1: Well, I think it's I think one of the issues that we have. Uh, I'm I don't know if I'm going to be able to combine all of this in, into one question, but uh, when we look at the parallels between um, marginalized groups and how social studies teachers slash history teachers have have developed curriculum and curricular materials. Yeah, I remember when I started teaching a long time ago, that so many of the resources for black history were about, um, you know, we're just about heroes, and um, heroes and victims, like the, the two, the two, the, the huge dichotomy, and other cultures, a huge part of it was like holidays. I remember seeing a book called uh, More Than Heroes and Holidays, and I was just so excited. (laughs) Like, yes, finally, somebody else gets it, that uh, that, that's not enough. Um, So, uh, you know, there's at the same time, there's also, um, I remember a sidebar in a U.S. history textbook. uh, I think it was the American Nation, Garrity was the the author, um, where during the Civil War chapter, there was a sidebar that the title was Jews did their part two. And I, and I kept saying to myself, please don't say finance the war, please don't say. F-. And then I read and yeah, they financed the war. Yeah. Um, and I just, it, in my, my takeaway from that was maybe it would have been better not to cover Jewish history in that particular moment. you know, like, that, maybe you're doing more damage. So long, long way around here. Um, we want to avoid token gestures that just, you know, randomly covering somebody. And he was gay, right? Um,
2: and or or, or or I would also say misappropriating, saying, "Well, this person was gay because that's the the myth or the rumor that exists, but not actually factual evidence."
1: Sure, like Lincoln and and Garfield or whoever else was, was right. is thrown into that. Um, and, and and I guess maybe part of the problem is that because we have laws like those in South Carolina the education law I'm talking about in South Carolina and and this idea of parents being able to opt out of curriculum of supposedly controversial curriculum that I mean this is material like really we should be talking about we don't need heroic women to cover women's history or heroic black men famous or you know we we need normal people and the biggest problem with LGBTQ history is that everybody was hiding it or most everybody was hiding it at that time. So there's, there are right. so few records. So, I mean, maybe my question is, it, it, are are our early American history classes the right place for this, or is this something that we want to, uh, you know, really dive in in say the the latter part of, of American history?
2: Well, you know, it mirrors, and, and this is just my, my frame of mind with, you know, the new Supreme Court, and, Supreme Court terms starting just in, in the last few weeks,
1: mm-hmm.
2: it, it mirrors the originalist versus contemporary perspective, right? So it begs the question, if Joe Schmo, that you're teaching about in U.S. history, did happen to be a gay man, does that warrant inclusion in your history class via, did he think that that was a, a, concrete or an important aspect of his livelihood or is that this contemporary spin that we're putting on it saying that well he has all these other things but he's also a gay man so let's feature him that way right that token of ap- appropriation that you had mentioned i don't think that there really is a clear-cut solution to that um, I-, I do think that the the life stories those individual perspectives that gray area between hero and villain per se right that if this one person did this thing, and yes, they happen to be gay, there could be a life lesson in that for students. But I think that the more important piece is just the visibility, that yes, these individuals have lived forever. (laughs) Yes, they've been in every single community, by and large, across the world, across the United States history, they have been here. You might not have heard about them, because again, maybe they were in in hiding or, or reserved about it or maybe they were they were censored or or something worse. But you think about it from the historical the historiography aspect of that, right? So the story does that warrant consideration. But then that contemporary side too, that how much value could you get in your classroom if you show just one student that this individual existed 100, 150 years ago?
1: Well, that is like uh, uh, it's almost as if you knew what my next question slash anecdote was because <laughs> one of my students who who is gay um, did a research paper on the lavender scare. Despite my intense interest in the red scare, I had never heard of that term. I mean, I knew I knew sexual orientation was an issue, and and the outing people both in terms of like. Uh, the, the thought was that they would be security risks because they would be hiding their sexuality and they could be blackmailed as a result. Um, but she did this amazing paper. She actually won a state award for this paper. Awesome. Um, but she was grateful specifically that she was able to do the research uh, on on people like her. Um, and And she said that my met, my my happenstance mention of von Steuben uh, was literally the only time in her academic career that somebody LGBTQ plus was mentioned in all of the social studies classes right. she ever had. So I, I would like I mean, you, you alluded to it, but if you could dig a little deeper into if you could talk about what it would mean for students to to either feel seen or or. To, be, to feel like they're invisible in, in the school curriculum.
2: Well, and, and maybe I'll parallel your anecdote with another anecdote outside the school curriculum, right? But there is a an ad from Hilton Hotels that just came out, I think in the last few weeks, that has been playing repeatedly on my Facebook. It features um, two gay men with their child and they're coming in from from what looks to be a, a family festivity or some sort of carnival or parade. The child has a tiger face painted, and he's asleep in the one dad's arms. And the whole thing is these, these men have their hands full of things. One's carrying, like, the diaper bag and this, that, and the other. And the whole bit is Hilton has now this keyless entry or this lobbyless entry into their hotel. So you can check in on your phone, put your phone, what have you. But... Um, To me, as a gay man, I'm like, hey, (laughs) that's a commercial with someone that looks like me. Mm -hmm. A white gay man. uh, I don't have children yet, but I do aspire to have children. A white gay man who likes to stay in the Hilton Hotel suite because a lot of the hotels have free breakfast, right? (laughs) So I'm like, but that, that is exactly who I am. I see myself. And for our students, you think about it like they don't have the freedom that adults have to go experience things. They don't have the freedom to maybe necessarily watch whatever TV shows they want to watch, right? There might be parental restrictions, what have you. They don't have the freedom to make their own choices about maybe what church they attend, about what you know school or university they go to. Like I had a full opportunity to choose what college I wanted to go to. Instead, our students are accustomed to their own culture. The culture may be within the broader school community, the culture within your classroom community, but by and large, the culture that they spend outside of the eight hours at school with their family, with their friends, right? What church do they go to? What things do they see? What news channels do they watch? What books do they read? What does their family talk about with them at the dinner table? All these things factor into that. And if this content is not the topic of discussion in any of those medium or media, when are these students going to get it? When are these students going to see this? Right. And speaking as, as a gay man who had to go through the whole coming out process, um, some of my family members were not receptive (laughs) to the fact that I came out as gay and they maybe distanced themselves. They didn't want to talk about the, uh, talk about the quote unquote decision. They didn't want to talk about my boyfriend or now, you know, now husband and, and, it's just very awkward. Like they didn't want to talk about that. That was the solution. It wasn't, they're going to be antagonistic and mean and say, you know, uh, we don't like you. We hate you, which happens in a lot of households. uh, Sad sad to say, but my family, they just didn't want to talk about it. If they didn't talk about it. Well, how am I a person who knows that I'm gay going to come into my own as a gay man? If no one wants to talk about it, if they're going to act like it's like uh, something you're just hush, hush, you know, and for me, that was very similar to what you mentioned with your student. I got to do a project my senior year of high school about uh, global issues, and I studied this this very global issue. Uh, albeit it wasn't nearly to the degree that I did for my undergrad project, but it was kind of that first kind of dip into this. Like, well, there are other gay people out there. I'm not. It's not just me in my small little suburban town, or you know, it's it's not just me that's getting harassed and being called gay by by other students in the building or, or what have you. Um, but, you know, hopefully that answers the question in, in somewhat of a roundabout way, right? with, But it, it hits at just a, you can't put a number on it. It's a personal story. It's a, a personal decision to come out. It's a personal decision to make those connections. It's something that, while some folks might argue teachers have no business doing or being engaged in, Teachers are there to support their students through what they are going through, in addition to teaching content. And if we can hit two birds with one stone, why not?
1: Thank you. Um, does does a focus on the progress that has been made in the last uh, 15 years um, do you think, do you think that it would be helpful for students to really kind of, to embed that understanding of the kind of this arc of, of, of progress? Because, I mean, I think it's easy for a student. I mean, it, it, it we want to be careful not to, uh, I'm thinking again, comparing it to the black experience about how sometimes people, well, you got a, you got a president, so everything's okay. You know, you don't, you don't want to dismiss, you know, obviously again, go back to the, to me, it's it really is one of the, the the most horrifying statistics that we have, which is the twenty nine states that still allow people to be fired or not hired based on their sexual orientation, have which has of course nothing to do with most jobs. Right. <laughs> but, right. Uh, so I mean, what do you think about that idea though of of like helping particularly not, I mean not just LGBTQ, but other students as well uh the the kind of the arc of moral history that's that's going on in our lifetimes
2: well you know in in terms of to deference to you know the the potential naysayers right like we also cannot go and cherry pick successes either right because that also casts a a disproportionate maybe view of um this grander narrative right? right yes LGBTQ people have the opportunity, the, the right to get married now. Yes, there are workplace protections at various levels now across various states. Yes, there are, you know, states that are requiring education on this topic. But again, those are all cherry pick things. For every single positive thing, I can tell you one LGBTQ student who maybe committed suicide last week for being bullied in in, in a school, right? right. Those statistics are part of the narrative as well. And to go to your comment, you know, about the black experience, you think about the early stages of the civil rights movement, right? The you know mid to late 1950s or so. And you think 15 years later, some schools in the South were still not desegregated. Uh, uh, um, so, or integrated, you know? So um, I think that all the progress that has been made In the last 15 years, well, we see where we're at now, 50 years after the civil rights movement, 60 years after the civil rights movement, still having these same conversations. And what's it going to look like? I will say that politically, socially, um, these things ebb and flow constantly, right? And what you had mentioned earlier, a lot of these civil rights endeavors, right? Whether it's the women's right movement of the early 1900s, right? It ebbed and flowed based on who was in power, based on who uh, was in media, based on who was writing the narratives, based on all these very minute things. And for us, I mean, I don't think it's our job to paint a picture for students or to cast this notion that things are improving. I think it is really just our job to, hey, here's the facts. LGBTQ people can marry. They've been able to marry since blank. Here's the facts that um, uh, I have to pull this statistic here really quick. Cause I don't have it on the top of my brain. Um, 42% of LGBTQ youth seriously considered attempting suicide in the past year. And we have to talk about it and not emphasizing good nor bad, just it is mm-hmm. what it is. Where do we go from here?
1: That's a really helpful perspective. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so, so, More generally, uh, how do we go about teaching tolerance and respect, particularly with students who come from families who believe in so-called traditional values?
2: Well, I don't think that you (laughs) can—this begs a much broader question. Maybe I'll I'll throw it back into your court, right? (laughs) Can you teach tolerance? Can you teach respect? And— I would answer my own question saying, yes, you can teach tolerance. Maybe you can teach respect. (laughs) And because I think that respect is a lot more of a systemic thing. Mm -hmm. And our role as teachers in whatever context we find ourselves in, some teachers are blessed to be able to have their students for two, three years. Or, you know, if you're a high school teacher for different content areas. Myself, I saw my students for a year. They were off to a different school building the next year. So, how much respect was I able to instill in my students? And taking it back to, to, to another perspective, can, you can ask this question, is um, respect agreeing with the notion that gay people should be able to marry? Or is respect um, recognizing that gay people can marry? Is respect not being rude when you see a gay married couple? Or is respect going back to what I mentioned earlier, not having derogatory conversations at the dinner table, and so much of that stuff is out of our control as educators outside of the school building. So, so I find, from my experience, you know, our role should really be to paint that—not not to paint the picture, but to portray that we are in a globalized society with numerous and ever-growing different indicators of diversity. And we have to get along. We, we have to recognize each other's strengths or each other's weaknesses, opportunities to work with one another, because that's exactly what our students are gonna have to do when they leave our classrooms. So a lot of this power rests in the conversations we have in the classroom, modeling tolerance for different views, uh, soliciting different views from students, whether it's a deliberation or you know, Socratic seminar or uh, whatever structure folks employ in their classrooms. But Having those perspectives shared, and maybe not necessarily, I, I don't want to use uh, phraseology that might fly in the face of of certain groups of people, but um, soliciting those perspectives and then listening to those perspectives. Not necessarily agreeing, not necessarily respecting perspectives, but listening to them, being open to them, and Being receptive of
1: them. Something you said uh, made me think of. um, Well, the question. You know, you you're turning the question around on me, um, and I don't know the answer to the question. You know, we we do our best to to get them in the right direction. I think ultimately. But my my mentor, um, who uh, served in in World War II, uh, grew up in uh, in Arizona. Uh, He's a white man, and he was he ne- he had never seen a black person before being on a naval ship um in the kitchen in the galley um and basically everyone in the kitchen was black except for him and for him uh he said that uh he he believed that uh you could force respect that or at least the navy could and <laughs> that you know that he had no options um and of course you know he was able to I- exposure and uh, you know and, and being re- I- I- having to sort of having to be receptive like you were just talking about uh it would have been a really painful difficult time for him to keep to keep you know giving in to the baser instincts or what he was what he was told from outsiders right. when he could see with his own two eyes um so i mean obviously it's not not quite the situation we we uh we we may we may be encountering in the classroom but then again if uh if they know who you are as you know, you're you're a role model and and having those conversations and being open to hearing from their perspectives, I think certainly could be a way of of imbuing that that understanding that or openness that that everybody needs to have in order to for us to make those connections.
2: Right. And you hit the nail right on the head, right? It's all about the environment, it's about the context, right? Like your your, your mentor what would happen if he didn't respect his colleagues in in the, in, in the galley, right? Something bad would have happened, right? (laughs) What happens if our students don't respect each other? Well, there's a million different answers to that, right? Um, they're still going to be in school. They're still going to, as we said, have all these other influence in their influences in their lives that we can't force them into that kind of, that box, or that understanding, or even that that mindset of respect, right? Much like an institution like like the Navy could, um, but, which I mean that that whole concept is is fascinating too. And and venturing to, to a bunch of different perspectives, there's there's a clip from the West Wing that that comes to mind right now. They're, they're seated around the table discussing, uh, I forget the the exact bill, but it was with the military, and it, it came to a head where. The the chair of the Joint Chiefs had to step in and you know just point blank say well you're never going to change these folks' minds, um, but you know we 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 can we can only hope to continue chipping away at it, and I would I would extend that bit about your role model he was an adult it was his career, and short of the different environment from Navy to school, what happens if we are forcing respect? on something that our students are not now or maybe not quite ready yet to receive, is that only going to inhibit respect down the road? Is that going to kind of codify the the notion in their mind that, no, we shouldn't talk about this. No, we shouldn't respect this group of people um, because that's also a fine line, right? Yeah. To what degree do we continue chipping away at before it flips and it becomes something that's that's viewed antagonistically by students or parents or community, um, which that, that's a very, very fine line to walk. And that, I mean, you talk again about difference in, of environment, that line is way to the one side in South Carolina, way back on the other side in New Jersey, right?
1: Right. Now, um, some of your uh, you know you, you you do refer to your work your your advocacy work as not only for students but for for other teachers as well can you talk at all about like what what does that entail
2: i mean it's the same notions right that this tolerance this respect bit um, again it changes the context because now you're still in this potentially antagonistic viewpoint but they're all adults and <laughs> they've had more many more years to solidify their thinking in terms of, you know, colleagues in a school, right. Or, or adults, it might be, and this is me generalizing um, because I haven't yet had this opportunity. Cause I, I've, to my knowledge, I've not worked with any other LGBTQ colleagues. So thus far in my career uh-huh. uh, w- w- within my school building, again, mm-hmm. I, I was in a very small, small. school. <laughs> there, there were 12 teachers on staff, you know, of those teachers have been there for 20 years. So came into a very tight-knit family community, like I said, but there wasn't much, you know, kind of turnover. Um, But I would say, you know, you can hit this block via content, but if an adult hasn't tried to learn more about content themselves yet, short of just posing a catalyst, there's not much we can do. Right. So you might say, well, have you ever heard about, you know, for borrowing from your example, the lavender scare? And if they're interested in it, you can expand from that, or they might take ownership and, and explore something of their, of their own mind. But if they don't, well, that's really not our nature as colleagues, uh, unless maybe it's within a department to say, oh, well, you need to explore this, right? Mm-hmm. You need to, to learn this much like we would do with our students. So in terms of advocating for colleagues, a lot more of it is that social support, that making sure that they have somebody to talk to, somebody to rely on, and or that they know what resources exist in the community. Is there a resource center? Is there a uh, a group of individuals that meets after school? Is there an ally club within the school district? So on and so forth. Um, and both are important. Ideally, in a perfect world, you would cover both. But like I said, I think that the biggest bang for your buck in terms of advocating for your colleagues is that, that latter element, the social aspect, just being a respectful, a tolerant uh, colleague to them Mm -hmm. and recognizing what angst, recognizing what stress, recognizing all these different things that we've talked about with students that these adults also bring to the table. Because if you're a gay man at age of 15, you have a lot of the same thoughts, the same worries, the same fears that you do as a gay man at 35.
1: Okay. So um, do you think in your new position with C-SPAN that uh, your LGBTQ advocacy might intersect at some point with the work that you're currently doing?
2: So I I currently work um, as education resource specialist uh, in my new role. So my task is to develop new content, uh, bell ringers, uh, lesson plans, deliberations, all of this type of stuff. Um, And we have the freedom, the flexibility to engage in a variety of different topics, right? And if you've watched C-SPAN before, (laughs) they don't shy away from the topics. It is, here's what these folks said. This is what we're going to broadcast live, right? We're going to broadcast the House live, the Senate live, the President live, We're going to have these other different programs where visit different cities, visit museums, hear from people, right? But it's unedited. It's uneditorialized. It is just what these folks are saying. But in my role, it is to take this footage. C-SPAN has upwards of, I believe, 270,000 hours of archived footage dating back to the 80s now on top of 24-7 on three networks now, new footage every single day. So my job is to take all this video and clip it into bite-sized chunks and pose questions. So absolutely, I, I do have a feeling that, that this work will um, come up in, in my role um, as I work to develop content. But I will say back to what we talked about earlier, a, a lot of the same issues with the content just not being out there is probably going to exist in this position as well. Just because it is based on what Congress is doing, and if Congress or the President <laughs> or the Executive Branch or, or the Judicial Branch, right, based on what they're doing, that's what I'm developing a curriculum for, right? So, you know, at, at first glance on on our um, education website, right, we have lessons about uh, the Stonewall Riots. We have lessons about uh, court cases, the Masterpiece Cake Shop case. Uh, the the gay marriage case, right? So all of this exists, and it's just it's balanced with everything that's happening in Washington and across the country on a day to day basis.
1: Zach, I appreciate you being here for this interview. I'm enjoying the work that you're churning out at C-SPAN already, and I look well, forward you. to I look forward to seeing
0: more of it in the near future.
2: Yeah, it's it's my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me.
0: All right, my friends, that was Bob in conversation with LGBTQ plus rights advocate, Zach Lowe. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. And if you want more of Bob, and who wouldn't, I've linked to his podcast in the show notes. And if you enjoyed Bob's conversation with Zach, and you enjoy my explorations of working lives, and if you want to do your part to share these conversations with real working people. Do me a favor and take a second to think about your favorite studs episode. Maybe you liked the guest. Maybe the work intrigued you. Maybe the conversation somehow just left a mark on you. Whatever the case may be, here's what you do. You think about a person in your life who might share the interest you have in that conversation. You copy the link and you shoot the episode over to that person and tell them to give it a listen. And for my part, We're going to continue the education season next week. We got a couple more episodes diving into the working lives of people who have devoted their careers to teaching and learning. And then, my friends, we'll be exploring the working lives of artists. That season has already changed my life, profoundly. Yeah, profoundly. I think that's true. All right, y'all. Stay funky in these trying times. And I'll catch you in two weeks.